Are you wandering in the wilderness? Or are you a voice in the wilderness? Welcome to the Revival Cry podcast. This is your host, Eric Miller. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The goal of this podcast is to encourage you to use the voice God has given you to make Jesus famous. Every week, we will share principles from the Word of God, interviews, and encouragement in order to strengthen your voice. Thank you for joining me today. And now here is today's podcast. I'm going to play a song that has greatly impacted me over the years. It's pretty old. It's over 30 years old. So it might sound a little different to some of you young people. But I think it speaks into what I'm going to share with you today on what does a doorkeeper look like. There's a, a lady named Twyla Paris who wrote this song, and it's a very old song, but she, I didn't really know anything about her, and I heard it playing one day, and this is in 1991 or two, maybe. But I played this song several years ago, and I felt a sense of calling behind it the first time that I heard it, and it messed with me. (laughs) And so I want to play it for you because I think it's going to speak into where we are as a church body. Let's play that song, brother. Keep around. 
salvation and I think it has something to do with it but I think the more that we realize how much that God wants to commune with us the place of intimacy the place of stilling ourselves before this holy God and making sure that every cell in our body is fixated upon him Lord that's what we want I believe that's what you're looking for God, I pray that in us, you would find us to be that people. That we would be a people who find their identity as doorkeepers in the house of God. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. You know, in Psalm 84, verse 10, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. The word for doorkeeper in the Hebrew there is sapap or sapap. It means to stand, to wait, to guard the threshold. To guard the threshold. In the amplified version, the classic version of that verse, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper and stand at the threshold in the house of my God than to dwell at ease in the tents of the wicked. You know, in order to understand, in order to understand what a doorkeeper looks like, I think we need to understand where the doorkeeper stood. And the threshold is again where the psalmist here said the Levites stood and kept their watch. In the Old Testament, the threshold was in the Lord's house, the tabernacle, the temple. It's where the doorkeepers, the Levites, they stood. And can we put up the first diagram, the yellowish one? So you can hopefully see this, okay? So uh, let me just point it out a few things here. So you can see four is 
uh, number four is kind of the entrance of the front gate. And then you see all the gates on the outside. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And there, there were more. But this is into the main court section of the temple. And so number one represents what's called the women's court. That's where women were only allowed to go. And number five was the Nicanor Gate. And then you go to number two, and it was the courts of the Israelites. So that's where anyone who was Jewish as a man could stand. And then if you go into where you see six, seven, eight, nine, that is actually, eight, nine is the actual temple. Eight is the holy place. Nine is the most holy place. And then you have seven, which I guess they call it shambles. And that's where they would, um, what do you call it? Take care of, prepare all the sacrifices. And then at number six was the altar, okay? Where they would burn the sacrifices. And, and there was more, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. That was all in the tabernacle. Just don't have time to go through all that. And then number three represents the courts of the priests, the Levites. And so the priests were, there were only certain people who were allowed in specific areas and only the high priest, as we know, could go into the most holy place, number nine, once a year. And they had a rope tied around their waist and they would make sacrifices and they would be splashing blood sacrifice all over the place. It was a pretty, you know, it gives you a picture about the blood that Jesus shed for us. And as he goes into the, uh, that room, the most holy place is where the um, Ark of the Covenant was. And above it was the mercy seat and where the glory of the Lord would abide. And it, it was probably a spectacular thing to be able to, to witness. And yet if that priest went in there, that high priest went in there once a year and he had done something that God asked him not to do, then he would die because sin leads to death. Well, that sounds harsh. Well, it only sounds harsh when you realize God's holy and then sin makes us unholy and this is why Jesus came. And so if you look in to where number four is, some believe that that is the gate beautiful, which we're going to get into in a moment, where Peter and John healed the lame man. Some also think it could have been actually number five, but I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. But I wanted to make that explanation so that you can understand where we're going here. But the, the Levites stood at all the gates and they were placed in specific strategic areas according to function and their responsibility. Some of the Levites stood near the temple doors, guarding the holy place. They were outside. You weren't just going to go in there. <laughs> so you can imagine what it must have been like when the veil was torn in two. <laughs> you know, because I don't know how, if they could see the Ark of the Covenant from where those front steps are between seven and six in the front of the temple. 
I don't know if they could see through because of the veil that separated or not. But I always wondered what it must have been like when the veil tore in two. And then when you weren't supposed to be in there, you suddenly saw that you could see what's in there. (laughs) And I don't know that the Shekinah glory of God was actually still there because there was no more need for it there. Jesus was now free to abide in the hearts of men and women. So some of the Levites stood at the temple doors guarding the holy place and others stood at the gates of the outer court entrances. So this would be considered, uh, you know, number one, number two, and, or number one is really probably considered the outer court and then the inner court and the most holy place. So there were three, uh, three different main sections of what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm sure a lot of you have heard these things before, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So in the New Testament, the, the threshold, so these Levites would be on the threshold of the entrance to the tabernacle, to the temple. And even before the temple was built, we had the tabernacle, right? The wilderness, it was the uh, mobile <laughs> tabernacle. It wasn't Herod's temple or Solomon's temple, but it, it still had the same. It, it still had the same laws and and responsibilities that God outlined for how it was designed to look and function. And so these priests that were on the threshold door, this is what he's talking about in Psalm eighty four ten. For a day in your courts better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper standing on the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell outside, outside here, in the tents of the wicked. So I want you to understand this because when we get into the New Testament, it says that there was a beggar, a lame man, who was at the threshold of the temple gate called beautiful. He was a beggar. He was begging for, for whatever anybody could give him. He couldn't walk. And in Jewish law, it's good to give alms. It's good to provide for those who are beggars. And, and yet they had a certain place that they could only stand because he was lame and he could not go into what we think is beyond number four, but for sure could never go beyond number five, even into the area where the Israelite men could be. And this is what Chandler Vincent said. He said, the gate was not only an ideal location for begging. He's talking about the gate beautiful. It represented the farthest point the beggar could go as invalids were not allowed to enter the temple beyond the precinct of the Gentiles. Gentiles, anybody who's not Jewish. Tragically, the beggar could stop at the gate, but he could never enter. 
Do you know that God has called his church to be doorkeepers, not beggars? That when Jesus shed his blood, we have a right now as much of a right as the high priest did to go into the most holy place with God. You're not supposed to sit out in categorized areas. Why did God do that? Because he was holy. And because he wanted to set rules so that people would not die unnecessarily by coming to his presence, his glory. It's not something to be messed with. It's something to be honored and valued. So that's why there's rules. God was doing it to protect Israel, although Israel already sinned and he had every right to just judge them and wipe them out. But he didn't do that. He immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, set into motion his plan of redemption for all of mankind. And you could see the thread of God's redemption all throughout all 66 different books written by 40 diff 44 different authors. The Bible was written mostly, uh, Old Testament and New Testament was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But it says one message from the beginning to the end. That's pretty spectacular. That, that reminds me of the scripture says God watches over his word to perform it. <laughs> but God had these rules because in order for Jesus to come and to, for him to fulfill the requirements of the law and the words of the prophets, a lot of things had to take place so that when he came, he would be able to give everybody an opportunity to hear that I am redeeming mankind with my blood. I've never sinned, but I'm going to become the once and for all sacrifice that will help appease the judgment and the wrath of God and declare you free from sin for eternity. That's good news. <laughs> and he said that he, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest. And that not only when we are born again are we sons and daughters, but we become priests with him. So you and I, again, have just as much right and function to stand at the door of God's glory and presence and be keepers of the door. To be doorkeepers in the house of God. When the psalmist said, I would rather be a doorkeeper at the threshold which separates the outside world from entering into the courts of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. He meant my goal in life is to live near the threshold of the holy of holies, the inner court at all times. Yet I am willing to just be a doorkeeper or even a beggar at the threshold outside the temple courts than to ever dwell in the tents of the wicked. So he's saying, if I can't stand at that threshold, 
near the glory and the presence of God, I will stand out here, but I will never go out here. Because I value God's presence. This is someone who did not have relationship with Jesus. But valued the presence of God so much so that whatever I can do, if it means I have to become a beggar, then I will become a beggar. I want to be as close to the presence of God as possible. Amen. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And let me say this, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the prophet, her willingness to be seen as a beggar or a doorkeeper prepared Samuel to become a prophet of God. Let's look in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of... Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkaniah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Now, why is it important that it tells us he's an Ephraimite? Because Ephraimites were part of the Levitical priesthood. Samuel's daddy was a Levite. Verse 2, and he had two wives. This is why we need Jesus, friend. The name of one was Hannah, and the, others, and the name of the other was Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city early, yearly, I'm sorry, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was, right? The wilderness tabernacle was set up. And it had been there for a long period of time. So it wasn't being taken down and moved. It has been placed in Shiloh now for quite some time. I'm not exactly sure how long, but it's been there a little while. And it says, also the two sons of Eli, Eli who was the high priest at that time, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. And whenever the time came for Elkaniah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Although the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year that she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So you see the tension of what's taking place in Hannah's life. She has no idea that she's going to get pregnant one day and have one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history who would present King David who would tear who would be the one that God would use to proclaim to King Saul that God is tearing the kingdom away from you and he's giving it to another. I mean, Samuel was no joke. He was the last of the judges before the kings of Israel. 
And he was so powerful and anointed. But yet Hannah knows none of this. All Hannah knows right now is that she doesn't have any kids. But her, his, her husband has another wife. And she has all the kids. And for, in her mind, she probably feels very hurt. She's gone through some pressure and challenges. Listen, you may be going through some things right now and have no clue of what life is going to look like 10 years from now. But I want to tell you something. Be like Hannah. Because although Hannah could not go past number one outside the courts of the women because there were all these restrictions, God was looking for a desperate woman, a desperate person in Israel that he could find even though he had priests standing at the gate. But they weren't hungry. In fact, the sons of Eli were wicked. And they were not looking for the glory of the Lord. They were going through the motions, but yet God was looking for someone who was desperate and that woman was Hannah. Verse 8, then Elkaniah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. You know, the best thing you could do when you have a lot of pain in your life is to pray. Because even if you don't feel like God is answering you, the fact that you are praying means a lot to him. Because these are the type of people that worship him in spirit and truth. These are the ones that God will set up, even though they don't know that he's setting them up. <laughs> She prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will come upon his head. What she was saying was, I will dedicate him to you as a Nazarite. You know who was a Nazarite? Anybody know a famous Nazarite? Had a haircut? Samson. It wasn't so much that his hair was cut that he lost his strength as much as he left his vow. And God said anybody who will be dedicated to him in such a way as Samson was would be a Nazarite. And so she is saying, if you'll just give me a son... I will give him back to you. This is the best thing you could do as parents. As soon as you have children, give them back to Jesus. And seek to make sure that they know him and walk with him and hear from him and obey him all the days of their life. That is what life is about. As a father, yes, you want your sons and daughters to be able to be responsible, to make money, to live on their own, and all of those things. But it's more important that Jesus is first. And I'm not just saying Jesus is first by bringing them to church every week. 
I'm saying Jesus is first by you living as a doorkeeper unto the Lord. That they would know that in your household, the presence and the glory of the Lord was normal. You say, but I failed. I've not done all that. And I don't know if I could get there. Friend, it's never too late to start. If you would establish an altar of prayer between you and God in your home, I'm not just talking about a physical altar, but a place, a posture before the Lord that you would see the value of intimacy and prayer. And as you read the word of God, he speaks to you and you download things. Your home will become a place where the abiding presence and the glory of the Lord dwelt in number nine. Number nine should be normal. With you, wherever you go, not just in your home. Verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. So we're going to, I'm going to share some reasons of why they think Eli was there, but probably around number two or just on the wall here, they're thinking that there was a place where Eli was where he was able to look down into the court of the women and see her talking to God, but couldn't hear anything. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Isn't that the nice thing to say to somebody who's desperate? (laughs) See, sometimes we could be real insensitive as Christians by judging people when they come in. What? Why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? Why are you wearing that? Why are you doing this and that? Friend, just plant seeds and water them. Let God do the rest. We have to be careful because if our goal is for people to know Jesus, sure we uphold truth. Sure we uphold, uh, you know, all the, you know, things we read in the word, the doctrine, theology, all that stuff. But we got to show love. And as we show love to people and we don't bash them, as soon as they come, they're going to say, how do you, how are you able to walk with God like you do? How do, how's your marriage blessed like that? How's your kids blessed like that? How, how, how does God use you and take care of you and provide you? See, we need to be able to live in such a way that we keep putting Jesus first and people say, I know God is with you. That's the greatest witness. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. I almost wondered if she functioned in a way as a Nazarite. (laughs) Probably didn't cut her hair, but. Verse 16, do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition for which you have asked him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, ate, and her face was what? No longer sad. Did she have a son yet? No. 
But what she did was pour out her heart to God and left it there at the altar and knew that God is faithful to perform his word. He's not going to leave us or forsake. See, this is what prayer does. This is how God trains you and me to become doorkeepers in the house of God. Is that by you lifting your burdens continuously to the Lord and seeing him answer those prayers for you, you'll stop being amazed at what God's doing with everybody else and you'll start to recognize that he's really interested in doing it through you. And it doesn't mean you have to become a pastor or a missionary or worshiper. That's not the goal. That's not the point. The, the, the goal of our lives is to make Jesus famous. It's to recognize what he has done for us and being so full of love and gratefulness that we realize there's nowhere else I can go. You alone have the words to eternal life. I can't go to left or right. I can't go back to Egypt. I've got to press on to take a hold of that which has taken hold of me. Here's some good facts. Herod's temple, we know, had the court of women. So that's what that represents there. So the question is, where did Hannah go to pray where Eli could see her when they had the tabernacle at Shiloh. The women's, this guy Tiago Perez says, the women's court existed in the second temple and there are sources which say it existed even in the tabernacle of Shiloh and in the first temple. And we know that in verse nine, it says that Eli sat at the doorpost of the temple. And it helps us explain a little bit more of where Hannah was when she was praying. And so again, we believe somewhere around probably five or two area there is where Eli was sitting when he was watching Hannah mouth her prayer, thinking that she was drunk. It's always sad to me that when somebody is pouring out their heart in prayer that uh, a spiritual leader can't recognize that they're actually praying. That's a little concerning to me. Because there, there's a lot of leaders who don't pray. There's a lot of people who just function in the gift and the calling. And while they may be anointed, the glory of God's not there. Because if you don't recognize yourself to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, you might function in your calling, but you never cultivate the glory of the Lord. Let me give you some commentaries on this really quick. The pulpit commentary says, as the tabernacle remained stationary at Shiloh, okay, for 300 years, naturally numerous buildings of a more solid nature grew up around it. There was a special seat located on a kind of a porch in front of God's house, right? Where we're saying that Eli said, the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges said upon a seat by a post of the temple or rather upon the seat or his seat by the doorpost of the temple, the sanctuary itself was so encased with buildings as to give it a name and appearance of a house or a temple. Remember, this was not uh, Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. It's not been built yet. So they only have the tabernacle, the one that has been around for quite some time. 
And it was probably, you know, worn out in some areas and some pieces were replaced, but it was a mobile tabernacle. And so as it's been sitting in Shiloh for 300 years, it is easy for these doorkeepers to become so familiar with the normalcy of tabernacle lifestyle that they did not cultivate the glory of the Lord in their midst. And they probably came to a point of, of, of feeling like God forgot them, but they were afraid to let go of doing what they knew they were going to do because if they did, that means they would lose their jobs. And the Levites were paid out of the treasury of the household of God. The 10%. So they were probably in this position of thinking, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And this is what happens when we get tempted to sin. Because while they're doing their thing, and they're going through the motions, and it doesn't seem like anything real exciting is happening anymore, you start to sin. Like Eli's sons did, and we'll read about that in a moment. But it says there was a gateway with a seat inside the doorposts of pillars which supported it. It was a seat or a throne of the ruler or judge as afterward in the palace of Solomon. Here Eli sat on days of religious or political uh, times and seasons and surveyed the worshipers as they came up the eminence on which the sanctuary was placed. Eli was observing the worshipers. I almost wonders if he was high above where he could see in the court number one, court number two, and court number three. Matthew Poole's commentary says, and although the tabernacle was built but a tent, although the tabernacle was but a tent, yet it was supported by boards and posts, and especially at the entrance by which Eli sat, even by the entrance into the outward court. Otherwise, he could not have seen Hannah. Eli sat on a porch with the tabernacle tent housed behind him. He looked outward in the open court and saw Hannah's lips moving. So what does a doorkeeper look like according to Hannah? Well, there's several things that she did. Number one, she was someone who loved God and was in need of him. You can love God and things not go perfectly in your life. You could love God and have trouble and hardship. But she continued to posture herself before the Lord to be in a place of need for God. See, uh, what we like here in America is I want to make so much money and get the right house and fence, and car, and all these things that I don't have any more problems anymore. And a big bank account, and things like that. And then we tend to think that life would just be wonderful after that. We're never going to have any more problems again. <laughs> doesn't work that way. I know people who are extremely wealthy and extremely miserable. People who, who thought this is the way to success in life. And then their sons and daughters hate God. And they don't walk with the Lord. I'm not saying it's wrong to have things. It's like Steve used to say all the time at the revival, just don't let things have you. 
But here, Hannah was poor in spirit. She reflected the nature and character of God by choosing to be a woman of prayer, a doorkeeper in the house of God. Number two, she was someone who was spiritually pregnant before she became physically pregnant. She allowed herself, as she poured out to God, her soul, her heart, her mind, her cares, her concerns, her worries, her anxieties, her stresses, her offenses with the other woman, probably with her husband, and would be honest with God. I'm talking about what a doorkeeper in the house of God looks like. We tend to think that these are people who just walk on water from the womb. That never looked like they had a problem in their life. But I'm telling you that the people who struggle and learn how to pray, learn how to really become doorkeepers in the house of God. They find that calling to be more important to them than standing on a platform in front of thousands of people. Number three, she was someone who the enemy provoked but did not overtake. I don't know what kind of attack that you've felt, whether it be physical, financial, relational, whatever goes on. But see, this is what I find. When I keep my mind fixed on Jesus, then when stuff comes against me, it doesn't derail me. I stay on track. And I go, oh, yep, I don't really like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. (laughs) Get hit from all sides sometimes. But the reason why I want to stay on track is because my goal is to become a doorkeeper. My goal is to be able that when I pray, God knows it's not just coming because I want him to do something for me. But that I would have been walking with him long enough that my will aligns with his will. And I begin to pray the things that are on his heart out on this world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we can repeat that or we can understand what we're saying when we say something like that. Number four, she was someone who believed God's word and was faithful to it year after year. She didn't stray. She didn't give up. She didn't complain. If she did, she complained in the prayer closet. She was faithful. She had every reason to make excuses to not become a woman of prayer. And she probably compared herself to other people who were successful thinking, well, I don't have what they have, so maybe I'm not blessed like that. But there's something in my heart that I know is true. That God has been faithful to me and he's never left me or forsaken me. Therefore, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, even though I don't have what I see other people around me having. Number five, she was someone who was not ashamed of weeping for what she desired from God. She allowed herself to be broken. You know what I love about Jerry Hill? 
is almost every time I see her speak, she weeps. I'm not saying that's the goal. But I'm saying that you feel what she's saying when she says it. And that's the way Steve Hill would be at the revival. Steve would be preaching and then he would turn at the camera on this side and he'd walk over to it and he'd look right in it and he would be so urgently crying for souls to get right with God. Why? Because Steve saw himself as a great evangelist or revivalist. No, he saw himself as a doorkeeper. He saw himself as one who carried the very heartbeat of God. He was in sync and in step with the Spirit as all of us should be. Friend, no matter what your outcome looks like, make sure that what you're receiving from the Lord is what satisfies you, not the accolades of what happens around you. Because it can be taken away from you just like that. And I have to be honest with you, being taken out of the Philippines after being there for 17 years and everywhere we're going having so much favor and respect and all this stuff and then coming in the States and really just the only people who knew us were mostly the churches that we went to. It, it wasn't really about that for us, but what I'm saying is it was an adjustment. And I had to say to the Lord that God, I don't care. <laughs> Uh, what I care is that you did something in us years ago and it's the reason why we went there and it's the reason why you'll keep us to this day. And we've seen God do other things. Things that we had no comprehension of what he would do. Someone, she was someone, number six, who was discontent until she saw a breakthrough. How discontent are you for revival? How discontent are you to see awakening in America? I know there's a lot of passion in this room. You can't come to a prayer meeting at this church and just kind of hide in the corner. <laughs> and it's not that we always have to be aggressive. That's not the point. The point is, is that when you walk with Jesus on a regular basis... Passion is more than an emotion. It's part of your history. It reminds you of the wonders of the Lord and what he's done for you. And so you keep pressing in because you remember how faithful God has been to you. Number seven, someone, she was someone who gave to God the most important thing that she desired. Samuel was born. Remember it says at the end in verse 18 that after she prayed, there was no more sadness. Within the next few verses, it says she gets pregnant. Isn't that interesting how that happens? But then she gave what she desired for her whole life back to Jesus. Lastly, she was someone who was so desperate for God that she was accused of being drunk. What does that remind you of? The day of Pentecost, they're speaking in tongues in the upper room. They spill out onto the street and it's only around nine o'clock in the morning and they say, are you guys drunk? I, I'm, I'm not going to be like some of these preachers to say, yeah, I want to be accused of being drunk. Because I think what they mean is totally something different than what 
scripture means a lot of times. But here's the reality. If people want to accuse me of being so filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the things of God in my life that they think I'm a loony tune, that's fine. I think you're nuts for ignoring Jesus. I do. It takes more faith to be an atheist to me. I want to finish up with this and then we're going to pray. Hannah understood what it meant to be a doorkeeper. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's Hannah's prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God for giving her a son. And this is a couple verses of what she said. The Lord makes, in verses uh, 7 and 8, 1 Samuel 2, 7 and 8, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the what? The beggar from the ash heap. To set them among princes and make them inherit a throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. When you and I pray, we are helping, in a sense, the world spin on the kingdom axis. We are helping contribute when we recognize our responsibility as a doorkeeper. Then we don't check that only when we go to church. Or only when we're in our devotions. Or some meeting that we have during the week. No, we're doorkeepers when we go to work. We're doorkeepers when we're in the line at the cash register. We're doorkeepers when we're driving. We're doorkeepers when we're at a theme park. We're doorkeepers when we're with our family who doesn't know Jesus. We represent him everywhere we go. I don't know about you, and I'm sure many of you do, that when you're out and about in life and you see people just not living up to what Jesus paid a price for them to have, it breaks my heart. When I see someone high or drunk and just walking around or somebody just, you know, living life in a way that is so contrary to the scripture, it breaks my heart because I know what that was like. And I know that you don't have to live like that anymore. And as a doorkeeper in the house of God, I can never dwell in the tents of the wicked again. But my heart is broken for those who are living outside. And I'm not asking them, come into court number one. Let's, let's come into court number two. Or no, friend, I want you to come into the holy place. To the secret place. I want you to have what we have. I want you to have more. <laughs> Eli's sons did not understand what it meant to be a doorkeeper. 
1 Samuel 2.12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt, and they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. These were Levites. These were doorkeepers. 1 Samuel 2.32. And you will see, this is a curse that a man of God spoke to Eli because he was not helping his sons to become what they should be. He said, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place. God speaking to Eli through another man of God. Despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. In other words, because you have forsaken your responsibility as a doorkeeper in the house of God, that I will take away from you what you did not value. 1 Samuel 4, 16 through 18. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. Now the ark of the covenant was captured by the Philistines. And this man came back from the battle. He said, I fled from the battle line. And, he said, and Eli said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons... Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And the ark of God, number nine, has been captured. Verse 18, listen, this is, this didn't just happen because he heard about his sons. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. You could be a leader for 40 years but not be a man or a woman of prayer. And if God says, my house, my church, my body is to be a house of prayer and we don't do that, but we have a better way of doing it, you know what that's called? Idolatry. Because we're making up a God in our mind that doesn't exist. Instead of taking God for face value at his word, we say, I'm not going to become a man or woman of prayer. Oh, I believe in it. Yeah, sure. God is great, God is good, and we thank you for this food. Amen. Really? Look, I'm not saying you got to spend eight, ten hours a day in prayer. Although they say that when Leonard Ravenhill was towards the end of his life, that's about how many hours a day he was spending in prayer. And then you wonder why he's connected to the Brownsville Revival and guys like Steve Hill. Dr. Michael Brown, Keith Green, David Wilkerson, Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM. I'm not saying everybody's got to be Leonard Ravenhill. That's not the point. Had a word for you two weeks ago 
about being the doorkeeper, a, a janitor, which is basically what Casey was telling me this morning. She saw about this word. And it's interesting that if you look at some of the responsibilities of the Levites who stood on the threshold, they were porters. They were janitors. They were a people who were taking things in where others could not go. Isn't that interesting? And they were, they were bringing in the offerings. They were kind of keeping everything organized and watching over what was important to God and his word because they were supposed to know the word. These Levites were supposed to have memorized the Torah. Try memorizing one chapter from the book of Genesis. They memorized... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the book of Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized. But even though they memorized it, they were still sitting on the threshold sometimes, not knowing why they're doing what they're doing. I want to challenge you this morning to become a doorkeeper. Thank you for listening to Revival Cry with Eric Miller. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review for this podcast on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more or partner with our missions work around the world, please visit us at revivalcry.org. I look forward to being with you next week.